Welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Shreya. And I'm Thomas, and we are your hosts for QTalks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not the typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on QTalks, we're talking to Daniel Rook, co-founder, partner and head of legal at Stark Codon, the Cambridge Healthcare and Life Sciences Accelerator. We're also joined by Shelby Newsad from Cambridge VCPE Society as one of our hosts. It's great to have you with us today, Shelby. Thanks very much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be on QTalks again. Hi, Daniel. Thanks very much for coming on the show with us. It's really nice to be invited. Thanks for inviting me. If you could start with giving us an overview of your background and what your role is at Start Codon. Yeah, very happy to. Uh, so I'm the Head of Legal and Operations at Start Codon. Um, I'll come on to what that means in a minute, but my background is, for my sins, uh, I'm a qualified, trained lawyer. I spent the, mo- the majority of my time uh, in the city uh, in an entrepreneurial setting, so um effectively advising entrepreneurs, investors, and people receiving and companies receiving money or investing money or, or buying or selling companies. Um, most of my career has been, you know, within within that setting, uh, as I said, and, uh, you know, a small part in Cambridge, most of the part in, in London with a large international law firm called Taylor Wessing. Um, so, so, yeah, a lot of VC, a lot of M&A backgrounds, um, you know, corporate reorganizations and things such as that. Um, after leaving Taylor Wessing, I went into industry, was general counsel of a biotech uh, in Cambridge. So lived lived the whole biotech to commercial organization journey. Uh, so from zero revenue up to, you know, um, nearly 30, 40 million uh, before I decided to go and set up Start Codon. So um, just to answer your second piece at Start Codon, I... Um, my fundamental role as, as, as head and legal of operations is to ensure the fund uh, operates and works as it should do. So everything from, you know, website all the way down to managing the investment process, negotiating investments into companies, uh, negotiating on investments, so investments after companies have been invested in by us. And, you know, uh, supplementing where I need to our diligence teams uh, to ensure that we properly vet the companies coming in. And having sinned in your words and trained and practiced as a lawyer, how does legal work for large companies map to the kind of work that's required in startups? You know, I think I think there is a... A misconception that somehow, you know, the large the the, the the work for large companies is somehow is is more complex or overshadows or, you know, um, is in is in more ways, um, you know, somehow much harder than it is for startups. Now, I, I think I think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a fallacy in many ways. I think I think what you find in large organisations is is more structure, more processes, which are necessary in a lot of instances with large groups of people you know companies employing large numbers of people but but actually a lot of the documents that you find are needed for the startups they're they're fundamentally the same for the large corporates it's just what changes really is the leverage so if you're investing in a company for example and you are
are a large corporate, you still need an investment document. You still need to review the articles of association of companies or the constitutional pieces. Um, you, see, you, know, you need to do that if you're a startup, um, you know, as the recipient. And and same same thing goes for if you're selling a company, you know, you do the same documents each time. All large companies, if they're in the healthcare space, will at some point, you know, deal with uh, you know, transfers of materials. They'll deal with commercial contracts. They'll employ employees. So it's perhaps the scale of those deals. Sometimes it is complexity. You know, I suppose the difference is, is the stage as the startup entities aren't as developed. And, you know, if you're in a large company and you're doing you know, complex things like clinical trials, then, you know, you will, you will do more of them. But actually there's a lot of synergy. There's a lot of synergies between the two. And to go on from that question, um, whether you've worked in small companies or large companies like Taylor Wessing, um, you've always been in the entrepreneurial law sector um what made you interested in in, in this space initially in, in the space at um just in terms of the entrepreneurial environment not particularly in healthcare or, or do you want me to answer both yeah the entrepreneurial environment i think it's all about inquisitive mindsets i think um you know from from my point of view i'm always someone who wants to try and learn something new um i'm a bit i'm a bit of a, a, a you know a, a nosy kid in that sense I, I like i like new and shiny things i like to be involved in in innovation and you know the exciting things in the market so i think primarily what sparked the interest of was the was the variety from being from being within uh, a setting which exposed you to a lot of really intelligent people looking to do really cool things whether that be you know initially before I, before my career moved into healthcare you know i used to advise on on tech uh, matters as well as healthcare matters because i'm not a scientist by by background it just so happened that i you know i did a lot i i, I I did a lot of large value fundraising rounds. So I went into healthcare. It's an area I've always found really interesting. I'm not, I'm not an idiot when it comes to science equally. I'm not an expert. Um, you know, so, so that interest developed there, but generally speaking, it was, it was really about being exposed to people and being exposed to an environment where there was a constant stream of innovation. So that's, that's originally what sparked it. And, you know, I've got to say having, you know, being in the sector for many years, it's it's the thing that continues to drive me because you will always see something new and you will always find people who fascinate you, whether that be because they're, you know, creating new technology, whether that be because their brain works in such a fantastically different way than your own brain works, um, or or whether actually you end up getting a bit base on a bit primal and, you know, the reason you, <laughs> you're excited is because some, something is just cool um, and it's just cool to see it happening. So, um, yeah, all those reasons, I think. Yeah, I think that entrepreneurial spirit leads us nicely on to talking a bit more about Start Codon. Um, so if you could maybe tell the listeners what it is that Start Codon does, um, how it was, how it came about to be founded and who are some of the members of the founding team, as I know a lot of people in the Cambridge ecosystem are quite familiar with the team at Start Codon and they're quite prolific people within Cambridge, I think it would be great to hear from you about um, about more about Start Codon. Yeah, so um, Start Codon, we are a uh, an early stage seed stage venture fund that runs uh, an accelerator program, and I'll, I'll come on to what that 
means in a minute because I think I think there's probably a mismatch in the market versus what we see as an accelerator program and you know what some other people may view as accelerator programs. I I, I prefer to view this as a form of catalyst in many ways, but I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. So, um, yep, seed seed venture fund um, that runs an accelerator program, a six month accelerator program. Um, so really early companies. We focus on the healthcare and the life sciences sector. Um, it, what that means in practice is. So long as we have a, uh, a group of founders or a company whose primary application is focusing on solving issues within healthcare life sciences, it's within our remit. To the extent that it, you know, does not the uh, primary application could could be applied to healthcare, but it's not, you know, the, it's not what the you know the founders or the company are currently thinking about, and they're not prepared to pivot that way. You know, it would be outside of our remit. So we're we're really looking for for innovative, disruptive solutions that can be applied to healthcare and life sciences. And, you know, that that can encompass therapeutics. So, you know, treatments uh, for prevention, curing of diseases. It can encompass digital health. Uh, it can encompass med tech, um, you know, and um, that's everything from kind of, you know, the technology devices all the way up to, you know, virtual solutions for, for, for medics. Um, so any, any, anything within that broad remit, really. Um, in terms of what we do, we invest a minimum of a quarter of a million. We we can we can go above that, but as a as a base level, um, you know, it's a quarter of a million. And for us to put more in would require a you know a, a, follow, a serious follow up discussion because from our point of view, we we want to try and you know invest in in more companies over the life of our fund. But um, you know, we we invest quarter of a million. Uh, we will do that. We're aiming to to, to invest in between thirty six and. 48 companies over the next five years, uh, not limited to Cambridge, but we do insist because we run the accelerator program that, you know, they have an involvement in Cambridge and, and you know, it is compulsory to participate in our, our healthcare accelerator scheme. I think that answers a bit about a bit about start codon. Um, you know, I can go into, into more of the model in a minute um, if you wish me to. In terms of the team, um, so, so there's me, as I said, uh, head of legal operations. Uh, we have my co-founder, um, and uh, Jason Mellard. Um, Jason uh, is our CEO, and was previously CEO of Cambridge Epigenetics. Uh, before that, uh, a very impressive business development background. Uh, and Jason is a scientist, um, you know, by training. Uh, we then have Sakura Holloway. Sakura Holloway is uh, also a scientist, uh, trade patent attorney. Um, you know, prior to being at Start Codon, uh, was involved as one of the the senior figures at Merck, and before that, as I said, private private practice attorney over in Australia. We have Sylvia Badone, who is our program um, and partnership manager. So Sylvia manages our six month accelerator program for the companies, uh, as well as helping to you know conduct and, and manage our relationships with our with our partners and we have a uh, secondi in the form of a gentleman called mike salarco who's seconded to us from cr uk on a part-time basis uh, mike again scientist by background um, with a real focus on business development so uh, a huge amount of experience um you know, both from a science perspective and also from a business development perspective at CRUK. And so that's that's the team that helps to deliver the six-month acceleration program for companies. You've already talked about what makes Start Codon different from other accelerators. Given the peaceful pro proliferation of accelerators, what do you think 
founders should look for when they are considering an accelerator? I think it's it's probably worthwhile just going back to the point, um, you know, of why I consider StartCoding to be it is an accelerator, but why I consider it to be a catalyst, if if that's all right, and then maybe then I can go and answer what what I think founders should look for. So, um, you know, I think I think when when we were thinking about StartCode on Jason and I, and, and you know, we got talking about setting up StartCode on between us many years ago, and we got involved with, uh, you know, some very prolific. Um, Funders in the area, so you know, we're backed by Cambridge Innovation Capital. We're backed by uh, Jonathan Milner, uh, Babraham Bioscience Technologies, which manages the Babraham um, you know, Research Campus, and uh, a gentleman called Ian Tomlinson, who used to be the global head of business development at GSK and was also a co-founder of Demantis with Greg Winter. So, you know, when we were starting to to set up and think about Start Code on the what what the reason it came about originally was because we didn't feel that there was enough support in the healthcare space um, you know, in the market at the moment. So the you know the US does it very well. It does it very well and does accelerators very well in the form of things like Y Combinator and Indie Bio, and have done and you know they've done a very successful model and they've traded out that model really successfully. Here. I think our view, and without you know criticizing perhaps what's currently on the market because they they do serve a useful purpose. I think our view is to we looked at the UK market and we. We couldn't find anything which was a a direct comparator. You know, we have the likes of BioCity, um, which is great, but you know, beyond beyond perhaps that, th- there weren't many accelerators in what we'd consider an act- to be accelerators in the market. I think, you know, in the UK, we blur perhaps what is you know the difference between accelerators and incubators. And incubators tend to be early stage, or at least you know. My my view of them is they tend to be really early stage, as as you know, as we are. They tend to be a, a bit of money, perhaps a bit of mentorship, perhaps a bit of office space, and then what distinguishes them from accelerators is the time in which they they might consider investing, but also the quanta and what they provide. So incubators tend to be for short periods of time and less money. Accelerators tend to be, in my mind, they should be for for longer periods of time with more money and a team which reflects the fact there's more money being put in and there's um, you know more time in the in the in the program as it were and i think i think in the uk we've got a tendency to call everything accelerators what do i think people should be looking for um i think they should be looking for um an accelerator which which offers them the right balance of of cash experience and you know benefits which you know will allow those guys to 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 get on the line of of getting their first more significant round of fundraising from external parties i think people people you know in many ways have a view of an accelerator as you come in you get a bit of money you get a bit of mentorship and then maybe you can apply to a new one or maybe you can go to loan you know that's not our that's not our model we want to be the the accelerator where people come to us, they get uh, uh, you know a fair amount of cash to start with. They get some really intensive acceleration program from people who have you know helped to, to pivot companies or, or launch products across you know different countries in the world. And so you know, I think if people look at that and they look what's out there and they think how much money they need to do what they need to do they work out you know what what experience they don't have around the table and that varies according to startups and you know what that accelerator program can offer them beyond the cash and the the kind of 
mentorship piece. Um, you know, that's what they should be looking for. And, and in my view, I think that's what Start Codon gives them, um, you know, in addition to kind of the mentor piece. And, you know, it's also about the fact, actually, that if you're going to join an accelerator program and you're going to join an accelerator program like ours, you know, we, we aren't hands off. Um, it's a, a sort of bit of a, a bit of a, an American approach, as it were, to, to acceleration. So we are going to be speaking to these guys, you know, on a, at least on a weekly basis, if not more. We are going to want to see deliverables achieved. We are going to push and set them and, and, and you know, really drive these guys forward to do what they what we think that they should be doing in order to get their next round of fundraising. And, you know, if people aren't aligned with that, they should perhaps align themselves with a, a program which addresses what their alignment is. Because this entire, you know, the entire process of investing in, in people is not just in, the, in companies, is not just in the, the, the technology, but in the people. And so I really think that people should focus on what it is they want to get out of the program, what they get from a material perspective as well as a support perspective, and whether their interests are aligned with the interests of the accelerator as well. Just to go on from that, Daniel, um, in terms of Start Codon's business model for the companies that have the amazing opportunity to go through the accelerator program at Start Codon, um, a lot of accelerators do convertible notes and safes, uh, like Y Combinator, for future rounds. Um, is that something Start Codon does or could do in addition to um, equity from the initial 250000 investment? Yeah, so so we we actually do both. So we not 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 so we do, we do a convertible and we do an equity piece. Um, we follow uh, a, a similar a similar view to Y Combinator, a similar view to to Indie Bio. So we we take a, a subscription of equity, which is eight percent equity. Uh, we will we will align with whatever whatever the most senior class of share is. So most of these companies just have ordinary shares. We'll take you know an amount equal to to eight percent of the uh, fully diluted share capital of the company, and that that's in consideration of you know of people coming into the accelerator program also in in consideration of the fact that you know people who invest early on need a certain degree of of shares in order to make it viable for them on a, on a longer term basis because you know ultimately people need to be able to at least wipe their face with their investments right so we take eight percent equity up front and then we invest the majority of our money through through a convertible we, we use a safe which is a, a a simple agreement for future equity um which is effectively a convertible uh, the only difference, really, the, the way I like to categorize safes versus loan notes is that loan notes are debt and they accrue interest and they convert typically on a fundraising round, but there's always ability to get them redeemed. Um, sometimes you see discounts, sometimes you, you don't when they convert into uh, equity. Um, simple agreements of future equity, uh, uh, just a, a convertible instrument which enables an investor to subscribe for shares in the future. So they're not redeemable, they're not a loan, they don't carry debt. And you tend to find in safes, uh, and we implement in our safe, um, we don't have a discount. We have something called a valuation cap, which is a variable discount based on how, um, how high the valuation is on the next round. So what I mean by that is if people do convertible loans, they tend to they tend to convert at a at a discount to a future fundraising, and that discount is typically in the region, you know, in the, in the realms of about twenty percent. So, from an investor's point of view, when they give a convertible loan, uh, in many ways, it's it's in their interest for the value of the company to be to be lower 
because their their you know money converts at a low valuation means they get more shares and it converts a twenty percent discount. Um, a safe with a valuation cap, so variable discount works on the opposite basis. So the lower the valuation, the less of the discount. The higher the valuation, the more a discount. Now, effectively, if we do our job in the accelerator program, we mentor these guys you know and, and girls well we help them grow their business we do help them accelerate it and they get a higher valuation or a high valuation on the the first round of funding we get a a higher discount on on our subscription and therefore we get more shares in turn the founders get more shares as well the higher you know we, we put in say a quarter of a million it's it's not actually the discount that you get and, and a conversion on a quarter of a million isn't that much but the, the key point here is that the higher the valuation, the better off the founders are. The lower the valuation, the worse off they are. So we 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 put in place a a safe with a valuation cap um, that tracks how high the valuation is in the future, and that aligns. You know, we find that aligns us with with our founders because ultimately, if we don't perform and they don't perform, then we don't benefit. There's no upside for us. Um, if they perform and we perform and we help them deliver what they what they should be delivering, they benefit because they get diluted less because the valuation is higher, and we benefit because we get a higher discount. So we very much follow the, you know, the kind of Y Combinator Indie Bio style model of of equity and a safe. It's quite enlightening finding out the technicalities and the mechanisms by which you operate. If I might move the discussion towards more general topics, as a lot of our um, listeners might be founders as well as those potentially looking at careers in investing. Um, so if we if we're able to speak about due diligence more generally and, and what you've seen um, in your work so far, um, what what do you see are some of the common pitfalls when you're doing due diligence to see which companies you might invest or bring on board for your accelerator program? Um, and particularly um, since you're focused on the healthcare sector, um, what uh, what are some of the common pitfalls that you see in, in these startups? Yeah, so I, you know, I think from a, from a DD perspective, it, it kind of, kind of comes into two buckets really um the first one is and it's an overriding principle of investors actually you know they, they invest in really exciting technologies but they also invest in the team and the team is 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 arguably as if not more important than the technology itself um because that's the people that have to deliver you know what they are trying to sell and the reason i mention that is because uh, one of the pitfalls that we tend to see uh, and i've seen many many times early on is that the people who are the founders when they when they incorporate their companies when they set it up and if they set it up without our involvement sometimes the the share allocations are not right so they don't split the shares according to either the time commitment of the people who are going to run you know the operation who are going to be involved you know long term and the reason that's relevant is because you want to, you want the people who are going to you know give the most to the business to be the most incentivized because those are the those are the people who are going to drive it forward. So I would say that we we see that and and I have seen that uh, done wrong many many times. And if I ever get to a point which we have done here where we we meet people who who haven't yet set up their companies, I will always encourage them really really strongly to think about equity allocation because it's not it's not a simple fix. You, you know you, you to just 
you know, transfer shares between founders or to issue new shares to founders once they've been issued. And, and the reason for that is, is that, you know, people tend to do that when there's an investor at the table. The second thing, particularly in, in life science companies, is the IP position is, is tends to be more complicated. And so the you tend to see some issues perhaps around IP ownership. Um, you know, in a lot of instances where we start talking to people, um, if they're being spun out of an entity, whether that be a university or another government, you know, another body or even a company, they they don't have the IP in the company, um, and you know they have to get that out, and they have to get it out on really good terms, or as preferential terms as they can get. So. Where where that hasn't happened, we tend to get involved in the discussions, um, you know, telling, making sure that the the license or the IP, you know, the, actually the license is put in place or an assignment of the IP is put in place to the to the company to make sure that they can use the technology and develop the technology as they said they were going to do and as they would like to do. And then I think at such an early stage, uh, and and this is not relevant through later rounds, but such an early stage, actually working out. You know, the time commitment, how people are going to be engaged with the company is really important. At an early stage, particularly in healthcare, you find that there are a lot of academics who want to, you know, keep a degree of their academic role um, or, you know, not not commit full time, not transition until later on down the line or whatever that may be when the, when the situation has been de-risked. And therefore, it's really, really important to work out what that person's role is and, and to make sure you've got the right documentation in place between that person and the company if they're not going to be either a full-time employee or if they're going to consult or, or they're just going to be a director. And the reason for that is, is because if those people are important to the business, they're developing intellectual property, that that needs to be owned by the business. And unless they're an employee of the business, then you know, as a default under English law, it's treated as if that person owns the IP or, or at least the entity which that person has been, you know, consulted from owns the ip so it's it's really important to get those things right at an early stage and then i think when you go to a you know later stage of a company you start through the diligence then when there's more substance when there is more you know there's just more in a company then you start to see you know some of the other matters uh, coming out so you start to see you know issues maybe on the commercial contract side and things such as that which just need to be to be wrapped up that's really helpful um for i think everybody to start to appreciate and picking up on what you're saying about ip because ip covers the entire spectrum really of of the of by definition the intellectual property of that startup um there's not just the knowledge of the person who kind of came up with the technology um and a large part of what startups in general look at are the patents um but given that you operate in the healthcare and life sciences um sectors how can how can startups in those sectors who maybe aren't able to file for um, patents able to demonstrate their IP positions? The most common situation here is that you had a piece of IP that could have been patented, but there's been a publication. And therefore, it's hard to patent something because the publication is prior art and therefore you can't you can't patent it. You can't get a patent over the tech. Now, the interesting thing there is, is to look at what has been published. And, you know, if the person who you know, if the prior art is is being a you know an academic collaboration between the founder and someone else, and they've published it and, and gone out to the market, it could well be there's actually IP that can be you know new IP that's created that can be patentable. 
And so it's about looking looking at who the person is, what it is they're trying to do, what it is they're trying to commercialize, and then you either go in, then you go down to looking down the route of well, actually, you haven't done this, but is something else patentable that can help you that can you know assist you to build business, and that's one side of things that you look at, and that's one way in which you know founders can they say well we haven't got this IP, but guess what we we can develop this. Uh, another piece is to um, if someone's got a really good idea, but you know there's another party out there um, that has had a similar idea that's got patent protection, you can look at license and end patents. Um, we're actually doing, and people think that's a later stage thing, but actually we're doing it with some really, you know, some really, um, you know, seed level kind of companies as well. We're, you know, we're bringing IP into them in addition to what the the founders can bring. So you can look to, you know, not only patent new IP, you can look to in license IP as well. Um, and then the other side of it is, you know, if you've got a business where actually there is there is no IP existing, then it's really about working out what it is that those guys have got. And in many instances, you know, they've got a, you know, you can you can have things which are not patentable, but there's a lot of know-how that goes into a process or a method or an idea. And if the know-how, you know, know-how is is in people's heads, right? So if it's the right people with the with the right backgrounds and and you know they have a huge degree of know-how on a subject there is an opportunity to potentially create a business out of that i think i think where you come to is then looking at ways you can create new stuff and patent it but it's also about working out how quick that product can be developed commercialized and brought to market because in that instance where you don't have protection at the start you might be able to develop you know get protection but really it then becomes about speed and rapidity and looking at what it is you're trying to to achieve Taking this on a little bit of a tangent, given that we're recording this at the moment, just a few days after the new future fund has been announced by the government to help early stage investments during COVID-19, what do you think of this and its potential impacts for both startups and um, for VC investments? So I think it's a really positive thing. And... um, you know, I know people who don't think it's positive, and and I and so I'll, t- I'll tell you, I'll tell you what it, in my opinion, though, it, it's fundamentally it's a it's a convertible loan with a you know a modest size interest rate, uh, with a you know with a you know with a right to convert into equity. It's clear it's clear the government wants to make loans to people, wants to take an equity stake in businesses, and you know that is the way in which they can, you know, um, help early stage companies to get finance. And you know the criteria around that, such as you know prior financing, I think will capture a lot of early stage businesses. It won't capture some of the businesses that we look at, where we're the first, you know, we're the first uh, investor investing. But it will it will capture a lot of existing businesses. So overall, I think it's a really good thing. Convertible loans enable people to to do business quickly, so it enables the government to put the money in really quickly um you know without having to negotiate an equity round and all the control rights that come through that so you know i think if you're looking at this as a relief that has been provided to companies due to covid which it is uh, and it's only designed to run for a for a, so a finite number of months then is a convertible in my mind the right way to go yes it is because it's quick the terms that they've published so far are pretty much on market with what you would see from most entities that are providing convertible instruments. And 
you know, it's not going to shock the hell out of investors or, or companies. So I think it's a really good thing. Conversely, I know that there are certain investors who are not happy with it. Um, I think, you know, the, from feedback from speaking to people that I know, the you know the main the main criticism is that it makes it really hard for angel investors who tend to benefit from certain tax relief, uh, such as uh, enterprise investment scheme relief or seed enterprise investment scheme relief, to invest alongside the government. And the reason for that is because you know, the whole purpose of convertible loans is that you don't price the round; you convert the money you loan at a you know at a future point. And you convert it at a, at a future price with a discount, and so you know to qualify for certain tax reliefs, which are you know really important to the angel investors, i.e. the you know the the the, the high net worth individuals who really are you know responsible for a huge amount of funding and a, and a huge amount of innovation for seed and and early stage companies, you know, particularly in the tech sector, but also you know also in healthcare as well. The problem there is that. They, in order for them to invest and to get their relief, they need to buy shares, and therefore they need to price the round. They need to ascribe a value to that round because they need to work out how many shares their X hundred of thousands, or, you know, will buy. There's always an option for investors to not subscribe for shares and to take convertibles and to benefit from the same terms of the government. That's not as beneficial from a tax perspective, but I know many angel investors who max out their investment. Uh, allowance for for EIS and SEIS each year, and then they still invest for the right opportunities and put money in either through a convertible, which we have been involved with, uh, or through you know other means. So, so I you know, yes, it doesn't align, um, and and certain parts of the community aren't aren't too happy about it. But I think overall it's a really positive thing. The reason that the government has set up, in my view, a loan note scheme. And they haven't provided necessarily for as well as they could have done for, you know, for the angel communities is is primarily one of speed. And it's primarily one of cash deployment to enable these companies to to benefit from the funds that have been provided through the future fund. Uh, and just just for absolute clarity, the fund itself was needed because a lot of startup entities they they didn't qualify, they don't qualify for for all sorts of reasons for some of the government-backed loan schemes that the government announced at the start of the COVID-19 crisis kicking off. So this is needed because in many of, you know, for many of those entities, they just simply didn't qualify for the relief. So the government needed to do something to ensure that the venture-backed businesses of the world didn't all just suddenly tank. Hmm. Really interesting to get your perspective, Daniel. Uh, a fun question to end the podcast. As a lawyer turned technology investor, what amazes you in the technology or healthcare space? Oh, just the sheer level of innovation. The fact that just when you think that you have seen everything, someone, again, who is, is you know, people who are far, far, far smarter than I come up with amazing ideas to, you know, which can really transform the lives of people. Uh, and, and particularly so in healthcare, you know, tech is tech is great, and it, it you know, improves your life in in many ways, makes it easier, makes it fun. But you know, particularly in healthcare, you know, you see you, some of the innovations that that are in the clinics, some of the innovations that have been developed that have the potential to really transform the lives of people, of patients, 
you know, of, of developed and developing economies is, you know, is really, really encouraging to see. And, you know, it's the innovation piece which keeps, which keeps you hooked. That's great. Thank you so much for coming on the show with us today, Daniel. No, thank you for inviting me. I hope it's been useful. It's been great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks very much again to Daniel for joining us on Q Talks. This podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we'd also like to say a big thank you to the team at QTech who've been working hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening and please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme or tell us about your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks.